Well, good morning. Welcome to, it's either the third or fourth class of our, or of our theology, theology class, uh, depending on when you, you believe that it started. Did it start the last week of May or the, the first week of June? Um, we're going to try to wrap up the doctrines of Scripture today. We were supposed to do that last week, um, but y'all were talking so much that we ended up getting a little bit behind. And so I think we made it about two-thirds of the way through our through our slides, which was, uh, joking aside, it was fantastic. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, this week, we're going to try to wrap up the last attribute of Scripture, and then we're going to go into a couple of other um, kind of special topics related to Scripture. And then next week... Um, unless y'all sidetrack me again, then we're going to get into um, the Trinity. And we're going to talk a bit about, um, his, do some historical theology and kind of walk through the, the formation of the, the doctrine of the, of the Trinity. So it's probably, I've got three, three doctrines that I really are near and dear to my heart. And um, the Trinity is one, um, the, the dual natures of the, the uh, of the person of Christ is another one, otherwise known as Christology or the hypostatic union, and then the other one is, is creation. Um, I feel like all three of those doctrines are either underplayed or misunderstood, and so I always try to emphasize those when I have the opportunity to. So, so Gravy, let's uh, pray, then we will get started. Father, thank you once again for this morning. Thank you for uh, just the time to come together and freely uh, assemble and um, study your word, get to know you a little bit better. I ask that you be with those folks uh, who aren't here today, um, particularly uh, uh, the Newmans uh, are on our hearts uh, with kind of what's happened with their house and um, Ken's uncle dying and that sort of thing. Please be with them, um, uh, give them peace, and uh, anybody else that um, has uh, troubles or trials going on right now, please uh, be with them and um, soothe their hearts and uh, calm their minds. And uh, we love you, we trust you, and uh, help us to glorify you in everything that we do. All these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. All right, so quick review from last week. Y'all remember what the four attributes of Scripture are? Cans. Ex- excellent. That's the, that's the word, cans. Now, what does it stand for? Or what? Yeah, what does it stand for? Clarity, excellent. Authority, beautiful. What's that? Excellent. Sufficiency, all right, you guys get an A+. Well, the left side of the room gets an A+. That side over there is, it's an incomplete. Oh, she used a big word? Okay. Oh, perspicuity. Oh, nice, I didn't catch that. She gets minus points for that, so... All right, so what does the clarity of Scripture mean? We'll just do a very, very brief summary. Um, The Bible is clear in its essential teachings about God, humanity, and salvation. And what does clarity of Scripture not mean? The Bible is clear in all its teachings. Okay, Because when when we read Scripture what we need to know about God, what we need to know about ourselves, what we need to know about our relationship with God, how to be saved, um, the fact that we're sinners, that sort of thing, all of that is very, very clear in Scripture. You know, a first, second, or third grader can understand it. 
Um, almost made the joke there, but I'm not going to. Um, something to do with College Station, but I don't, I don't want to go there. Um, and so, but there are also parts of Scripture that are deeper than any human mind can possibly go. And so we can't expect to just read everything and come away and understand everything that's in the Bible. No human being has ever done that in, in history, and no human being ever will. But that doesn't mean that it's not clear. It also doesn't mean that we don't need teachers, preachers, or scholars. We do need people, or the church needs people to set time aside to go in, to study, to spend extra time studying. It has the gift of teaching and explaining what it is that the Scripture says and means. All right, authority of Scripture. The words of Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. The authority of Scripture does not mean that church tradition carries no weight or value in matters not clear or in uh, not addressed in Scripture. So we turn to Scripture for our questions about a relationship with God, how to live our lives, that sort of thing. But if we turn to Scripture and the, if we don't get a clear answer, if we still just don't know what to do, it is good, it's very healthy to look at church tradition and see how um, folks have handled that for the last 2,000 years. You know, whatever particular question that is. You know, like um, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, nothing new is, un you know, there's nothing new under the sun. So we may be experiencing kind of problems that we believe are new, but by and large, those problems have been, are cyclical. People have seen them time and time and again. And they've been solved uh, time and again. The necessity of Scripture, God has revealed only in Scripture uh, that which is necessary for mankind's salvation and godly living. So we can look out in creation, we can understand certain things about God, uh, his, not, his power, his wisdom, his divine attributes, eternal nature, that sort of thing. But we cannot um, turn to nature and um, actually have a, a relationship with him. That relationship has only been revealed in uh, his son, which was revealed to us in, in Scripture. So what does the necessity of Scripture not mean? It does not mean that mankind cannot know that God exists without Scripture. Every human being in the history of the world knows that God exists. Every atheist in the world knows that God exists. But like Paul said in Romans 1, they deny they deny basically who he is in unrighteousness. The certain things about God are clearly perceived in the things that have been created. Man can, it also does not mean that mankind cannot know anything about God without Scripture. So, like I just said, there are certain things that we can know that are taught um, in, in creation. And mankind is... Uh, it does not mean that mankind is not condemned without Scripture. And what I mean by that is I remember um, when I was first being witnessed to back in the early 2000s, my big hang-up was, hey, what about the innocent aborigine in the middle of Australia who's never heard of Jesus? And, you know, ultimately the response was there is no such thing as an innocent aborigine in the middle of Australia who's never heard of Jesus. There are 
Aborigines in Australia that have never heard of Jesus, but there's no innocent one. So scripture, I'm sorry, uh, creation and our conscience gives us enough to condemn us, but it does not give us enough to, um, to save us. And so the necessity, scripture is necessary for coming to a saving uh, relationship with God. Okay, so what does sufficiency of scripture mean? Well, that's where we're going today. We're going to start talking about sufficiency. <sighs> Let's see. So, very quickly, in Scripture, God has provided all the words that we need in order to know God both truly and personally, as well as everything we need to know to live an abundant and godly life. Okay? Um, you can see how this is kind of complementary to necessity. We have to have Scripture to know certain things. And then when we do turn to Scripture, it tells us everything that we need to know in terms of information in order to, to be saved, etc., and to, to live a godly life. This does not mean that we should only believe statements that are directly quoted from the Bible. There are also good and necessary consequences of the Bible. Somebody tell me what that means, good and necessary consequences of Scripture. How about from this corner over here? Good and necessary consequences of Scripture. Is there teachings that have extrapolated out has something that is beneficial or useful for for understanding that's not necessarily word for word in the Scripture? Right. So we can turn to Scripture, and it can it will say things, but then we can use some logic basically to I'd say to extend it. But, but to apply it, right? So it, not all of our doctrines have to be um, word for word in, in Scripture. What's that? Like the Trinity, right. Actually, I think I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because we're going to be going through those questions here in a few minutes. Um, in other words, sufficiency of Scripture is not the same thing as no creed but the Bible. So there are folks that will say, you know, they deny the Apostles' Creed, they deny the um, Nicene Creed or, you know, whatever creed. Uh, and as a matter of fact, they don't even want to study theology because they say, I have no creed but the Bible. I just, I just trust Jesus, you know. And we're going to talk about that here in a few minutes. 2 Timothy 3.15-18 through 18 says, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make, make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be com, um, completely equipped for every good work. The punchline is really, I mean, it's a great quote talking about scripture. Um, it's a great passage, but kind of the... The punchline is really at the, at the end, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. Okay, So that is um, kind of the sufficiency of, of Scripture in a nutshell. All right. So if we believe in this, the sufficiency of Scripture, why would we use non-biblical language in our doctrines and creeds? Anybody?
Okay, think about, sorry. Oh. Um, let's roll back the clock to the early fourth century. There's a heretic named Arius on the loose. Arius is reading passages, for example, John chapter 3, uh, verse 16, where it says that, um, that Jesus is begotten. And what he says is, see, Jesus is begotten. Therefore, Jesus was born. Jesus had is a created being. Therefore, Jesus cannot be God. Okay? And so the, the good guys, um, the, or, the Orthodox, um, led a, uh, basically had charges against him. And there, there was a council called the... Um, and the place called Nicaea, and what came out of that was the Nicene Creed in 325 A.D. It didn't, it didn't um, invent or create the deity of Christ. It articulated the deity of Christ and the, um, the, the Trinity itself. Okay? And what they did was they talked about essences, they talked about persons, they talked about that sort of thing. And the reason they had to do that was because Arius's heresy was using biblical language to begin with. So when you're de- dealing with heretics, they're using biblical language, we're using biblical language, and so what you have to do is you have to, you have to be able to explain that language in other, using other terms in order to define what it is that you're talking about. Does that make sense? Okay? So, because the, the, the issue was over what those biblical passages mean. And so we have to use non-biblical language, not always, but we often have to in our doctrines and our creeds in order to articulate what it is that Scripture is saying. Cool? Yeah. Does the sufficiency of Scripture mean that we only accept doctrines that are explicit in Scripture? I think Jan answered that question a little while ago. Um, we have to be careful there because the Trinity is not explicit in Scripture. And so we use those, we use Scripture, good and necessary consequences of Scripture, to formulate and articulate our doctrines. And then that's where we have things like our statement of faith and things of that nature. So, does the sufficiency of Scripture mean that we should not contemplate God in creation? Okay, you want to explain? Um, just because the scripture is sufficient doesn't mean we can't also appreciate that God reveals himself in nature and in his creation. Right, well, well said. Just because um, scripture is sufficient for a, living a godly life, it's got all of the information basically that we need, it doesn't mean that God doesn't also reveal himself in, in nature as well. I'll give you... Um, at least what I think is a really good example. Back in 2005, um, Hurricane Katrina hit, and um, my cousin and I, five days after, after the hurricane, my cousin and I took off uh, from Houston to um, Biloxi, Mississippi, to pick up Jan's aunt and bring her home. And we had to do some work on our house and then bring her home. On the way there, we were kind of in, I guess, eastern Louisiana, somewhere around Slidell, and there was no power for, I don't know, maybe 100 miles in any direction. 
and it was a perfectly clear night, and we pulled over for, you know, bio break, and, because nothing was open, and I, I closed the truck door, and I looked up, and I'd never in my life seen a canopy of stars like that before. It was one of the most breathtaking things I, I had ever seen. It, it beats the Grand Canyon, you know. And unfortunately, we're robbed of that living around city lights and that sort of thing. But it was an absolutely, like I said, breathtaking thing. And all of a sudden, David's words came to my mind. You know, what is man that you're mindful of him? Because I looked at that and I, I to a greater degree, appreciated the, the infinitude, the... Um, the, the lack of boundaries in God, the fact that he is infinite um, and omnipotent. Like I said, it, it, in a sense, it deepened in my relationship with him. I understood his majesty just a little bit better. I didn't learn anything new. It wasn't like he gave me a new attribute or anything like that, but it strengthened what was already there in uh in, in, from Scripture. It kind of brought it into technicolor for me, I guess you could say. All right. Another one was just the other day, Friday. I was actually working on these slides. I'm sitting in my backyard. Uh, not my backyard, my patio, under cover because it was really hot. I don't know why I was out there. And um, I look over and there's this like little, looked like a little tornado in the middle of my lawn. And it was a bunch of gnats or some kind of bugs running around. And I just watched them for a few minutes. And I started thinking about the complexity of those little bugs and what they were doing. And I was, honestly, I was in awe of these little, these little critters running around. And I'm like, God created those. And if you take the, the, the inconceivable complexity of each one of those little critters and just think about how many of those were in my backyard and all the diversity just in my little backyard in the middle of Cypress, Texas. That is mind-blowing. And then you take that and you expand it to the rest of the world. And just by looking at a little tornado of little gnats running around in my backyard, I came to, I think, appreciate the majesty and the amazingness, is that a word? Amazingness of, of God. You know? And it's... He's there. His fingerprints are there if we open our eyes. And we just, we can't be afraid to, um, to look at things like that and, and just be in awe. Because I guarantee you, nobody here could create anything like that. All right. And the reason I, I bring that up, and the reason I talk about that, is that I've, there was this movement I think it came about a couple hundred years ago, and it was called the um, natural theology movement. And the idea was that you could actually, you know, gain a relationship with God through strictly through nature. And, you know, since then, a lot of people, especially Reformed folks like ourselves, have, have railed against that, have fought against that, and gone a little bit too far by almost saying that, you know, you can't learn anything at all about God and nature. But that in itself is anti-scriptural or counter-scriptural. So, anyway. Um, all right. Sermon's over.
So what are some things we can know about God outside of Scripture? I already gave you the answer, but or some of the answers, but is there anything else? So what can we know about it through, through nature? Yes, sir? Eternal power, divine nature. Eternal power, divine nature. Okay. Anything else? Creative. Yeah, creative. Yeah, you can, um, everybody knows they're created, and it doesn't require contemplation, right? Um, just like a person following, falling in a pool of water knows without deliberation that they have to swim in order to survive. Everybody that finds themselves um, walking the, the planet knows uh, that, that they were created. Absolutely. You, uh, creationists are born, atheists are made. So, go ahead. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. That's a little more specific than uh, like divine wisdom and that sort of, but it is divine wisdom. It's, it's, it's a, a specific example of that, right? Um, he's order, orderly, um, structured, kind of that sort of thing. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Yes, sir. I guess it's the same uniform in nature. Okay. Uniformity and diversity, right? Kind of both together. So cool. So what are some things we can know about ourselves outside of Scripture? Now, we're going to wait for an awkward silence on this one. What can you know about yourself outside of Scripture? There you go. Now, how do you know you're sinful? Because you know you. Okay. Well, we're saying without God's word. Okay, there you go. Now, let's dip into, did you say something? Our conscience. Our conscience, okay, great. If we dip into Romans 2 real quick, what does Romans 2 say? Where is the law written? Written on your heart. Were you going to say something, Sharon? Yeah, in the Garden of Eden, what did man gain the knowledge of good Knowledge of God, right, exactly. And then you extend that to, to Romans 2. The um, law of God is written on your, on your heart. And then, so you know, you know, there aren't that many morally ambiguous things, decisions that we have to make. And we know what's right and wrong, 99 times out of 100. But there's that ought question. You know, ought I to do this? And when, and And if... We know what we ought to do, but when we don't do what we ought to do, then that reveals our sin nature to us. And like one of you, I think it was Mallory, said something about conscience. Yeah, that's your conscience going, you know, you really should have done that. So, yes, sir? I also think, I know sin's always the first thing we go to, but I also think outside of Scripture we can know that we're creative also. So have emotions, so have a brain that articulate things and we can build and create and structure things. So even outside of Scripture, we can look at ourselves and see something that's more complex than, you know, what we would, what atheists would think that we were, which is just electricity bouncing around molecules. Excellent. Yeah. We can know a little more about our, our, um, our constitution, really, is what it boiled down to. Were you going to say that, Josh? Yeah. Um, so something I think that everybody eventually outside of Scripture, figures out and comes to a point where they know that they're broken. Yeah, 
You, you know something's wrong, but without Scripture, you don't know what. You don't know how to fix it. And then all of a sudden, Scripture throws you a curveball, and it's like, you know what? You can't fix it at all. God, has, God himself has to fix it. Without Scripture, too, you can see natural consequences of your actions sometimes. You can see hurt that you hurt somebody else, and and you can see that as a consequence of your of your um, like you said of your action, and you can know that 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 shouldn't have happened. But then, what do you do? You do the same thing next time too. All right. Well, good, good. Glad you guys are waking up. All right. Um, so, what are some areas where Christians fail to observe the sufficiency of Scripture? Everything that we when we seek anything outside of Scripture to fill that hole that we got in the last one, to fill that <clears throat> missing piece uh, or wherever it is that fulfills us, I think we step outside of uh, God's sufficient and the Scripture sufficiency. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. So um, there's lots of things basically. Um, does anything specific come to anybody's mind? Areas where we fail to observe it. Oh, by the way, this uh, this side of the the uh, class is starting to kind of pull ahead, so you guys need to step up your game. Um. <laughs> all righty. So um, let me give you an example. Look at all the craziness going on in, with woke, woke culture right now. So if you wind back the clock. I wind back the clock a lot in this class. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. But um, a little over 100 years ago, uh, liberal theology was kind of taking over all the mainline churches. And liberal theology, its hallmark is essentially really is either anti-supernaturalism or the denial of the fact that you can actually know something objective about God if you even believe that he exists, okay? And so liberal theology took the gospel and turned it away from sin and into, like, social justice, even though we just started using that term not too long ago, um, very popularly not too long ago. But they started turning it to social questions, um, poverty and, you know, racism and, you know, kind of things of that nature. Um. And so there was a group that, uh, they were called the fundamentalists, which means something different now than it did back then. But they were uh, trying to counter the, the liberals. And so what they did was they overreacted. And what they did was they moved the, moved the social concerns of the gospel. They, they stripped the gospel of social concerns. And they only dealt with spiritual concerns. So what you ended up with was a kind of a dichotomy. You had the liberal theologians denying the spirituality, the true spirituality of Christianity, of the gospel. And then you had the response to that was to strip away the social concerns of the gospel. Well, the gospel has always concerned both. You can go back 2,000 years, or you can go back 3,500 years. God's law has always dealt with the poor, the oppressed, that sort of thing. You look at what a true Israelite was back in the day, back in the Old Testament times, 
have anything to do with being, uh, with, with being, you know, who your biological uh, father or mother was. It dealt with who you worshipped. Rahab is a fantastic example. Ruth is another example. They're both in the line of the Messiah, by the way. Okay. Um, so anyway, back to the 20th century. So through all this time, you have the church, mainline churches, divorcing themselves from all these social concerns. Well, lo and behold, in the last 10, 10, 15 years or so, we've had this movement where there's an awareness of social justice concerns. And what these churches have done is they have they they don't have the tools, at least they don't know that they have the tools, in order to deal with these issues. And so what they're doing is they're going outside of Scripture, and they're bringing in um, learnings, teachings, that sort of thing, from essentially Marxist roots. They're bringing in, um, in reality, anti-Christian teachings to, to come in and deal with these things. And what it's doing is it's ripping the churches apart. You can see it across all sorts of denominations. Um, I'm not going to name any in particular, but you can see it across a multitude of denominations where they, they're, they're breaking up and they're fracturing all over the place because there's one side trying to stick with the, the sufficiency of Scripture and the true gospel and dealing with social issues in a, in a God-honoring way. And then the other ones are saying they're being very pragmatic and and taking on um, uh, teachings from outside of the gospel, right? So in all these social justice issues, we can say most of the time, okay, there, you have a point, but the problem is they're dealing with it wrong. And then what they do is they, when they're interpreting the Bible, they're interpreting the, the Bible incorrectly, and they're using it as a weapon. Okay, Does that make sense? So when we did not deny the sufficiency of Scripture, we end up in a big mess like we're seeing right now. And it's literally denominations are fracturing and exploding. I, not literally. I didn't use the word literal in a literal sense. Go ahead. What about those that preach works-based salvation? That's you know, what that okay. That is sufficiency, but it's not so much the sufficiency of Scripture as it is the sufficiency of grace. Right. So that what they're saying is so. What this issue is is you have to go outside of Scripture in order to have the information you need in order to live a godly life, what work salvation does is says you have to go outside of God's grace in order to um, to be reconciled to him. Okay. And back when you were talking about the dual nature, that, that's grace versus justice, right? Oh, with Christ? Yeah. No, the dual nature of Christ. Um, oh, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Fully divine, fully human. Yeah, yep. Yeah, you're welcome. Sorry, I kind of threw a red herring out there unintentionally. All right, cool. Anybody else? Any questions? Okay. Yeah, so not, under, not adhering to or understanding the sufficiency of Scripture really gets us in, in deep water. All right, so who denies the sufficiency of Scripture? Wow, you guys are good. Um, when he said, uh, I, I mean... It's funny, it's almost kind of you know, tongue-in-cheek putting Satan up here for denying every attribute of Scripture. But when he said, you know, can you believe that you know, God said, or uh, did God really say, which could also be interpreted as can you believe that he said, 
Um, he was attacking God's word in basically every way that you can imagine. Oh, who else? Ah, oh, you guys are great. Roman church also. Um, yeah, we have to, um, one, we have to, well, gets into the clarity of scripture, scripture with the um, magisterium, but also, <clears throat> uh, you know, I meant to bring it today and I forgot. I have a book. Okay, I'm holding up my fingers, and that's at least, that's probably two and a half inches-ish. And it's, a, it's paperback, uh, it's like mass market paperback. I, what is that, like six by nine or something? Uh, very small font, and I don't know, I'm guessing seven, eight hundred pages, I could be off. But it is called the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And, you know, if scripture is this much, you know, one inch, it's like the catechism of the Catholic Church is like that much. I mean, it's just, it's like there's as much catechism that they throw on top of scripture as there is uh, scripture itself. Okay, who else? I'm not going to give you guys a sneak peek. What's that? Mormons. Mormons. Okay, Mormons. Yeah, they'll, they deny pretty much every, every part of it. Um, I didn't think about them, but yeah, they're good too, because Joseph Smith... He added the scripture, didn't he? Well, if you talk to a Mormon, they're like, you believe the same thing, it's just all the so that they're different and it's just Yeah, they were yeah. I know, they deny it all, but like Yeah. 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 It's just ask them if they worship a created being. So um the Gnostics. You guys are familiar with the Gnostics? They're an ancient Heresy, cult, whatever that um, believed that uh, the way to have a relationship with God, whatever that is, um, was a, kind of a special knowledge. Okay. Charismatics. What do charismatics do that denies the sufficiency of Scripture? Put a put a put an insane amount on the Holy Spirit, but then also corrupt his ministry, don't they? Uh, what they do, yeah, I, I have a word from the Lord, you know, and they, they're they constantly bringing out new revelation, you know, God told me, kind of, you know, that, that sort of thing. And most evangelicals. Because a couple of different reasons. One, if we have a problem, very rarely do we actually turn to Scripture. Um, and I'm not speaking for everybody. It says most, so not, not all. But... Um, and then the other way is we tend to quote, um, I was sitting in a, I'll just call it a theological discussion one time, and there were these guys debating um, like Booser and, I think it was Booser and Calvin if I remember correctly, and they were just going back and forth and never appealing to scripture, only appealing to their favorite theologians. And so one of the things that we do is we'll appeal to a theologian or we'll appeal to our pastor or we'll appeal to um, uh, pretty much, you know, anybody that we respect. And in regards to something that is addressed in Scripture, but we don't actually trace it back to Scripture. Let me rephrase that because that made no sense. Sometimes we take the argument of a theologian and hold it up as authoritative, right? Even though the only way that that's authoritative is if you can trace what they're saying back to Scripture. 
Does it make sense? If you can't do that, then it's opinion. It may be educated opinion, but it's opinion nonetheless. And so I've often said is, if, if you're going to quote with authority, either a pastor or a theologian to me, you need to be able to explain their reasoning. You know, other, otherwise, I'm just, you know, um, we're, we're holding them up as authoritative when only the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is sufficient. All right, inspiration. Uh, the Holy Spirit influenced human authors to write exactly uh, what he wanted them to write. Instead of merely dictating words to them, God worked through their unique personalities and circumstances. Scripture is therefore both fully human and fully divine. Inspiration only applies to the writings, not the authors. It cannot be reduced to human insight or to heightened states of consciousness of any kind. So it's not like Paul and Peter and John were all like Shakespeare. Some They were really smart or highly, you know, some heightened state of consciousness. They weren't like Muhammad who went into a cave and inhaled some methane and, you know. Anyway, moving on. The whole, uh, the whole of Scripture and all its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. The inspiration of Scripture cannot be rightly, cannot rightly be affirmed of the whole without the parts or of, or, the, or of some parts but not the whole. What is that thing in the way? I know. <laughs> it's okay. I'm just playing. All right. Are some parts of the Bible more inspired than others? No. No. Good. What verse is often brought up as a proof text to show that not all scripture is created equal? What's that? The red, the red letters, yeah. But what particular passage? We got to we got to hurry up. So, or we got about fifteen minutes left. So I'm going to go ahead and throw this one out. First Corinthians seven ten says, "To the married I give this charge: not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him." He should not divorce her. So you see the problem here? It says at, on the top top line, it says, not I, but the Lord. And then uh, was it fourth one down at the end? It says, I, not the Lord. Now, does that mean that the red letters are inspired and those are what the Lord said, and then these are not inspired, and so the account is less? Is that what that verse means? No? What does it mean? It means this is something that the Lord, that Christ explicitly taught during his ministry. But Paul, what he's doing is he's giving you an, a command as well, or a teaching as well, that is just as authoritative. It's just something that Christ did not teach during his ministry. Does that make sense? So it's not a matter of one is elevated above the other because the Holy Spirit led Paul to say what, what he said. All right, does that make sense? Cool. Were you going to say something over there? No, I was just saying he was using good and necessary consequences. There you go, good and necessary I like it, I like it. All right. 
I wanted to talk a little bit more about that, but um, like I said, I think we're running out of time. All right, so biblical translations. Stuart's not here, and he's the one that, that caused this mess, all right? So do you remember Proverbs 22, 28 from last week? Um, this is what's called, has anybody seen an interlinear Bible before? This is uh, Hebrew up on the top, and then it's got kind of a phonetic thing so that we know how it's more or less pronounced in the middle. And then down at the bottom, it's got kind of an English equivalent. So what this says is, must not be, you are moving away, boundary of eon, which they made fathers of you. Okay? And if you remember, that top red in English there is the ESV, and that's what I read last week. It says, do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. And then the fourth one down, which is also in red, <coughs> is one that Stuart brought up, and he said... Hey, I've got a you know different translation here. It's the New Living Translation. Um, don't cheat your neighbor by moving the ancient boundary markers set up by previous generations. So, what is the difference? Not in words. Don't don't give me all the words that are different. But what is the difference in approaches between those two uh, translations? There. What do you think? Go ahead. say context. You're saying it, it adds context. Um, I don't think that's far off, but what, what the word that I use is interpretation. Uses a little bit of interpretation. So what's the difference between translation and interpretation? Translation is just a one-to-one, one language to another. Well, that, that's the key, is translation is... Um, Moving from one language to another. Go ahead. Interpretation involves some localization, which is when you, uh, maybe the phrase is very odd in if you translate it directly. So you. Well, forget about translation for a minute. I'm asking what, what is it? That's what interpretation is. Okay. You're doing the nearest. Phrase all or so meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's the same meaning. You're just not using the direct words. Right. So interpretation, you're trying to draw out the meaning of the text. Translation, you're moving the text from one language to another. Right. So it's moving from one one language to another and uh, meaning. That is the uh, the difference between them. So can you translate from one language to another without any interpretation? All right, so we'll start over here. Caleb? It depends on the sentence because there are slang terms and colloquialisms that we recognize that don't make any sense, but not from you know, speaking our language from our era. And if you don't believe that, just talk to somebody from the UK. They use completely different slangs and they speak the same language and mean nothing to us. 
cool. We're going with you last. Okay, <laughs> okay cool. Mallory? I don't remember You don't remember what you said? Oh, okay. It depends on from which language to which language. Some are more easily translated than others. Okay, so it's, a, it's kind of a scale. Yeah. Okay. Yes, sir? Have you played with Google Translate where you put an English phrase and then you translate it like five different times? Oh, yeah. Um, actually, I, I, I'll tell you what, I'll give you my answer here in a minute, because I was surprised at, at what it did. So, anybody else? Yes, ma'am? I just want to make things more complicated. There's like dynamic translation and, no, form equivalent, form equivalent and dynamic, and the form equivalent sticks with the, some of the language and the dynamic when changes over inwards. Okay, cool. And we're getting, we're gonna, we're actually gonna bring up those words here in a, in a few minutes. Um, st somebody over here? Yes, sir. I was just gonna say, I, I don't think there's any way to do translation without a little bit of interpretation. That's what I was gonna say. The, the, the answer to the question is no, you can't translate from one language without any interpretation. Translation necessarily involves understanding the meaning, communicate the meaning in a different language. So you can. You can try and pick a word that comes close to communicating the exact same meaning, but it's never going to have the exact same meaning as a word has. Always a little bit of interpretation, no matter how hard you're trying to just be really, really wooden. Uh, well, well, well said, I think. Um, all right, so translate the following into English. Uh, Jesus pregunto uh, como te llamas. Proguto means asked, by the way. Yeah, Jesus asked, "What? What? Uh, well, how are you called?" Right. Oh, I'm sorry, I gave it away, didn't I? Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Sorry, I I, ju I jumped the gun on that one. So, Jesus asked, "How are you called?" Or Jesus asked, "What is your name?" Now, if let let let's say that you're a Bible translator and you came across that Spanish phrase from the original Greek, how would you translate that into English? Would you say, Jesus asked, how are you called, or Jesus asked, what is your name? What is your name? Which one? Yes, ma'am? I think it would depend on the context of the conversation, because how are you called can include a title, include a profession, it include a whole bunch of other things. What is your name is just, what is your name, and it could just be first name. Okay, cool. I think that's a good point. What's your title? Are you a king? Or, yeah, that sort of thing. So there's context, like Andy was talking about, and then there's also kind of getting to the, like, the real meaning underneath. But regardless, um, there's, there's interpretation there, right? Yeah, and going back to what Bruce was asking, um, when I did in Google Translate, I did Komote Yamas, and it said, what is your name? But then I put in uh, Jesus Pregunto and it gave me, how are you called? So I was, so what it did was, I guess it knew to substitute something that we say things a little bit differently, but when it, that was in a part of a bigger sentence, it didn't, it didn't make that connection. All right. I bet chat, chat GPT will, will get it though. All right. All right, so, so what we see here is we have to interpret. There has to be some interpret, I'm sorry, yeah, interpretation in order to translate from one, from one language to another. So this is Psalm 7-9. Uh, 
Uh, he shall lapse, please evil of wicked ones, and you shall establish righteous one, and testing hearts and kidneys, Elohim, righteous one. Right? So how is this translated into, into uh, English? Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, who you, who, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. Where is minds and hearts up in the original? So why, you know, are they taking liberties or are they making the text clear? And that depends on who you ask. Okay, some people say that they want a literal word for word, just give me scripture. Well, that's what you get when you go up top. Okay, so we have Bible translators that spend their lives dedicated to going from Hebrew to English or from Greek to English and so they, they try to give us something readable that's an accurate representation of, of the, the original. But here's the, here's the issue also. This is a theology class. You have certain presuppositions when it comes to your theology, and so sometimes your theology creeps into your translation. That can or cannot, I mean, that can be nefarious, it cannot be nefarious. But the interesting thing about this one is there's another Bible called the New English Translation. And this Bible is, you know how you have a, a study Bible that gives you like notes about meaning or theological points or whatever, and you know, like footnotes? The New English, uh, New English Translation, the NET, does that only it's translation notes. And so this is the same, um, same scripture and so they translated it, May the evil deeds of the wicked come to an end, but make the innocent secure, O righteous God, you who examine inner thoughts and motives. Okay? And you can see down at the very bottom, uh, I guess it's footnote F, it says, In Hebrew, the one who tests hearts and kidneys, righteous God, the translation inverts the word order to improve the English style, the hearts and kidneys were viewed as the seat of one's volition, conscience, and moral character. Right? So, if you ever wonder, or if a skeptic that you talk to ever asks, why are there so many translations? It's because of this. It's because you can't go from one language to another without interpretation. And... Um, by the way, the NET, I do recommend it as like a secondary Bible. Um, I carry the ESV, otherwise known as God's Word, um, but I carry the ESV. Um, some people do, you know, NASB or, you know, there's, there's lots of good ones out there. The NET is really good to come alongside where if you read, you know, every once in a while read the ESV, and, or I'm sorry, the NET, and then if you do have questions about, well, what does this mean, maybe you can look at a different translation. And it can help. And by the way, I do, um, you know, certain people don't like me to say this, but uh, the message or the New Living Translation is shouldn't be really your first option to carry around. But, but to read it periodically is, I think, a very healthy thing. Because if you're reading something and it's like, wow, that seems different than what I'm used to, then you can go in and begin to examine it, right? And examination of the Bible is a healthy thing.
All right, so this is what Sharon was talking about a few minutes ago. Um, there are groups of... Uh, uh, translation styles are kind of grouped together into categories. One is formal, you don't have to remember these words, there's not, you know, these terms, there's not going to be a, you know, pop quiz or anything. Um, there's formal equivalence, which kind of strives for a, a word for word. It doesn't really pull it off, but it strives for a word for word. It tries to keep as, as close as, as reasonable. There's functional equivalence, which is more of a, a thought for thought. Um, and rather than try to produce the original text, they try, try to reproduce the original ideas using modern language. And then there's uh, paraphrase, which I kind of, the way I think about it is almost like a paragraph for paragraph. They're retelling the basic gist of the passage using the translator's own words, right? And the NLT message or paraphrase, right? Yeah. So, great question. Um, so as you can see, they're not, they, none of these translations can be neatly grouped into one or the other. On the far left, you have the ones that are closer to the original language, the more um, literal. Over on the right, you have the, the paraphrases. And it really is a, um, a spectrum in, in between. Okay? Um, these are, of course, rough approximations, but um, I, I think it's a fairly helpful, helpful chart. I found it on the interwebs where everything is true. So, um, but I like, you know, I think it's healthy to have one on the left and um, kind of as your everyday carry around Bible. Uh, NET is not on here, but an NET is good to study sometimes. And then one on the right, I think is healthy, um, especially for reading late at night when your brain's only on half, half empty. Next week, we're going to talk about some historical theology. Any questions? Everybody good? New English translation. Cool. All right, excellent. Caleb, you mind closing us? Father God, thank you for bringing us all together this morning. We pray, Lord, that we would uh, honor you and glorify you with our time, fellowship with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.